Will you please turn with me in your Bibles this morning, one final time, to the seventh chapter of the Gospel according to Mark, where we are going to be looking together at those closing verses, verses 31 through 37. Mark chapter 7, 31 through 37, and you can find that passage on the bottom of page 988 in your Pew Bibles. And as this seventh chapter begins to close here or comes to a close here, we are reminded again of the mission of Mark here from the very beginning of this narrative, which has been to get before us or to place before us the full revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. To place before us the biblical Jesus. This is Jesus as he has revealed himself to his people. This is the long-awaited Messiah. This is the King of kings and his kingdom that you and I are coming before here. And Jesus is not here attempting to establish an alternative religion to compete with traditional Judaism. We need to make that connection. We need to understand that he is the fulfillment of all these things. He is the fulfillment of all that the people of God have been longing and waiting for. He is the finality of it, the culmination of it. Moses and the prophets looked, albeit through the shadows, for and towards the Lord Jesus Christ. The prophets longed for his arrival and they spoke of it in precise, clear detail. And here in Mark, we see that he has arrived and he has begun to work towards the completion of his mission. He is restoring what has been broken because of sin. He is beginning the work of setting things right. And we've seen that, right? He's healing the sick and the lame. He's casting out demons. He's bringing life to what's dead. He's doing the work of restoration. And though it is on somewhat of a small scale here at this point in Mark, we will see that that work is increasing and increasing as he moves closer and closer to the cross. And his glorious resurrection. And it will continue to increase in glory and momentum until Jesus comes again to establish the new heavens and the new earth. He is building his kingdom. And one of the things that Mark has made very clear for us here is that his kingdom includes people from every tribe, from every nation. From every tongue. We saw it last week with his encounter with the Syrophoenician woman. She too had to get to Jesus. She knew that she had no claim to him, she was not Jewish. She was a pagan, a Greek, in fact, according to Mark. She was considered to be unclean. And here she is breaking custom, crossing cultural lines because something in her had to get 
to Jesus Christ. Her only hope for relief for her daughter was Jesus Christ. And so she was driven to him. And that something that's doing the driving, we know, was true faith. Jesus was there seeking some solitude. He was seeking a little bit of rest and respite from his seemingly unending labor. However, God-given faith must get to him, and so he cannot remain concealed from the eyes of faith. And we spoke of what that faith did for her. First, it clearly showed her the desperate condition that she was in. She herself was a sinner. Her daughter was a sinner. She was desperate for her daughter to be relieved of this unclean spirit that had apparently been destroying their lives. And this was a mother's desperation that had her seeking relief. And she, in her simple faith, knew that she was in a desperate situation and that her situation required her to get to Jesus to find relief. Beloved, that's what faith does. It does it in Jew and Gentile alike. We not only know that we are in a desperate and perilous situation in our sin, but we also believe the word of God when it says that we do not deserve relief. We do not deserve a remedy. And yet faith does not give up hope. Faith recognizes a couple of things. First and foremost, it recognizes the absolute, complete authority and the full identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it runs to him in hope anticipating the life that only he can give and the brokenness that only he can restore. Faith recognizes its desperation and runs to King Jesus for a remedy, which is exactly what this woman did. She ran to him in faith, knowing, believing, trusting that salvation was his to give and that he indeed would be willing to give it, that he would be merciful that he would be gracious. And when Jesus, really in not too gentle of a way, asks her why she should be given anything at all, her answer points us to that third result of the gift of God-given faith that we looked at last week. Real, genuine, gospel-fueled humility. He points out to her her own lack of merit to receive it or anything else, for that matter, from his hand. And she hears him. And she doesn't get defensive. She does not get offended. She points out the glory that even the dogs under the table have the pleasure of dining on and receiving all that they need from the children's crumbs. A beautiful testimony of faith. She's content with the crumbs. Because by faith, she knows that the crumbs are more than enough. And Jesus says, because of this saying, go in the knowledge that your daughter is well. Because of this display of God's wonderful gift of faith, go knowing and trusting that everything that is needed is given. 
Beloved, hopefully it, it, it weighed on you last week, right? It, it's a beautiful redemption story. And how beautiful it truly is to see this glorious, triumphant kingdom sweeping people in from every nation, tribe, and tongue under the sun. Mark really allows for us to see the scope, at least to the degree that we're able to see it anyway, of the grace of Almighty God here. And beloved, I trust that it was an encouragement to your faith. It's an encouragement to my faith. And in in these closing verses here of Mark chapter 7 that are before before us this morning, Mark will again show us this faith being graciously extended, given to the nations, the Gentiles. And it's my hope to point out to you a few more wonderful truths about who Jesus is and what he's done for us as Mark does so. We will again see here the merciful love of God for all peoples and all nations here. And as we consider that together, we will again encounter his wonderful compassion for the lost. What I really hope to show you here this morning then is what happens as we are on the receiving end of that compassion. What happens to us? And I love that Mark does not just give us a purely romantic notion of all that will be in the Christian life. This is not a Thomas Kincaid painting. This is not soft light and bright colors and all those things that make us feel warm and fuzzy. Jesus gives us a very real, very gritty picture of the Christian life here. And it's my prayer that that would bless us to see it. From the same hearts and the same minds come both doxology and disobedience. And beloved, it's something that I am sure, or at least that I certainly hope that we can all relate to this morning. So I'd like you to follow along with me in your Bibles as I read now the closing verses of Mark chapter 7. Again, I'll pick up with verse 31 and read through 30, verse 37. Hear now the word of our Lord. Again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. Then they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in in his speech, and they begged him to put his hand on him. And he took him aside from the multitude, and he put his fingers in his ears, and he spat and touched his tongue. Then, looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephphatha, that is, be opened. Immediately his ears were opened and the impediment of his tongue was loosed and he spoke plainly. Then he commanded them that they should tell no one. But the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it. They were astonished beyond measure saying, he has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. This is the the reading of the word of our Lord, and may he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we're grateful that we have this time in your word each and every Lord's Day. We pray that you would not only fill us with your spirit, Father, but that you would clear our hearts and our minds of all those things that distract us, that we would be able to give 
our attention to the wonderful, glorious truth of your word. And hearing that word through the power of your spirit, that we would be transformed by that word for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I've already mentioned to you this morning, this really is the second of two accounts recorded here in Mark chapter 7, detailing for us the fact that salvation was going forth. It was going out to both the Jews and to the Gentiles alike. And this takes place sometime after Jesus' encounter with the Syrophoenician woman that we looked at last week. It's interesting. Mark doesn't really give us too many details here regarding the circumstances surrounding this event or even the roundabout path that it appears that Jesus took to be in the region of Decapolis or what we call the Ten Cities. I don't know if you have a a map in your Bible. If you do, it would probably be beneficial to look at it and you'd understand why I say this is a roundabout path for Jesus to get to where he's going. He departed from the region we know of Tyre and Sidon, going through the midst of the region, according to Mark here, of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. And that's a strange route. If you have your map, you'll see that Tyre and Sidon, they're up to the north of the area of Galilee. And then you'd have to come down towards Galilee, which is northeast of the Sea of Galilee, going all the way around to the south where Decapolis sits to the southwest of the Sea of Galilee. And commentators make many speculations as to why Jesus took this path or whether or not he really took this path. Volumes are written on on what Jesus is doing and taking this path to where he's going. Though I'm pretty sure that any of, the, any of that conjecture is really not at all helpful to seeing what I think we need to see here. Because the truth is, there is plenty to chew on here that I think is very clear and certainly worth our time to look at and to know this morning. And one thing that is clear, I've mentioned to you already, Mark wants us to know that Jesus took this message of the kingdom, the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ, to the Gentiles. That much is undeniable. Remember, Mark began this section or this chapter with that collision that we saw in the beginning of chapter 7 that had been building up from the beginning of his narrative that took place between Jesus on the one hand and the spiritual leaders of Israel, the scribes and the Pharisees. And in that collision, we saw Jesus making very clear that it was not the things coming into a man from outside of a man that would defile him, but what came from inside of a man. What came from the heart of sinful, defiled man, right? The problem is the heart. The problem is that sin originates there. And he wants them to understand that with regards to all of the ritual cleanliness or to its extreme perversion that was being taught and promoted by the scribes and the Pharisees. And all of their zeal to keep their own vain, over-the-top traditions, their extensions of the law of God, they were actually breaking the law of God rather than epitomizing the law of God as they foolishly thought that they were. 
And I'm not going to unpack all of that again. I know we looked at it a couple of weeks ago. Other than to say this, beloved, we must see that the gospel is here going out to the ends of the earth, to the world, to the Jewish people, and to all the other nations, Jews and Gentiles alike. And all of those who are called by the voice of God will come. All of them. He will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. He will invade their lives with his grace and he will transform them from the inside out. They will be recreated, remade, reborn. We need to see it. And understand that none of this is or should be new or novel here for these people. We know, unfortunately, that's not the case. But none of this should be new or novel. Why do I say that? This is not a new thing. This is the fulfillment of messianic prophecy that they should have been looking for all along. Turn with me quickly to Isaiah chapter 35. I want you to see it for yourself. I want you to listen as Isaiah the prophet describes the future glory of Zion and the coming of the Messiah. I'll start in verse 1, Isaiah 35. The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them. In the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The excellence of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellence of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong. Do not fear. Behold, your God will come with a vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and he will save you. And listen. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. And the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. For waters will burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The parched ground shall become a pool and the thirsty land springs of water and the habitation of jackals where each lay there will be grass and reeds and rushes. A highway will be there and a road and it shall be called the highway to holiness. The unclean will not pass over it, but it shall be for others. Whoever walks this road, although a fool, shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast go upon it. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing and with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness. Beloved, he in Jesus is here in Mark 7. He's come. He's restoring what has been broken. And not just within the nation of Israel. 
The world will bow before him. The wilderness and the dry land will be glad. Do you understand? In Zion, all who come will rejoice. Every nation, every tribe, every tongue. What a beautiful picture. The king and his kingdom. This is what's going on here in this region of Decapolis. Jesus is coming and he's bringing restoration to the broken ones. Beloved, do you see the beauty of it this morning? There is all, this has always been the course of, rege- of redemption. From Genesis to Revelation, none of this is new. It's getting clearer and clearer and clearer until we get to Jesus. The culmination of all things. Do you consider it? And of course, when we do consider it, it it leads us to, to spend time meditating and seeing even more of his glory here. Consider for a moment the second thing. I want you to look with me for just a moment at the compassion of Jesus here. Again, he's tired. He is exhausted, physically exhausted, and rightly so. He has been on the move continually. This path, however you plot it, to get all the way down to the area of Decapolis, uh, by way of where he's coming, something like 126 miles. He's constantly on the move. He's constantly being confronted with these desperate, broken crowds full of broken sinners living in a broken creation, all of them seeking relief and healing and wholeness and life. And he's here trying to get some rest. But he cannot be hidden from the eyes of faith. Mark makes that point again. Faith drives the desperate to the only source of hope. The only source of restoration. So Mark tells us they bring this man before him. We know that he's deaf and that he's unable to speak. And Mark does not indicate or infer to us anything here, like even a shred of resistance from the Savior here on acting on this. Jesus isn't pausing. He's not telling anyone, hey, I'm trying to get some rest. Maybe come back and see me Monday. None of that's going on. Jesus immediately moves into action. Jesus leads this man aside from the crowd and he physically sticks his fingers inside of this man's ears. That's odd, right? Maybe a little gross, but it gets odder. He then, we are told, spits presumably upon his own fingers, and he touches the man's tongue with his own saliva-soaked fingers. Now, let me just pause here for a moment. Of course, this is Jesus, right? He certainly could restore this man with but a word from his omnipotent mouth. But he does not. We should probably be asking ourselves why. Why doesn't he? I want you to think back for a moment to the Pharisees and their unbelief, their pride and their own vain traditions, the traditions of men and their own traditions of ritual cleanliness. 
traditions that went well above and beyond the law of God. And here is Jesus getting dirty in kingdom work. Here is the king of kings getting dirty and doing the work of the gospel. He's sticking his fingers in the holes of ears. He's got saliva on his fingers and he's touching the tongue of another human being. It's dirty work. Because this man's ears and his tongue, they can be restored. He could simply touch them. He could brush up against this man like the woman with the issue of blood. And we know that his power would go forth and heal. But there's a bigger point to be made. This man is unclean. He's a Gentile. He's become disfigured, deformed in a sense. And Jesus is not just casually brushing up against this man. He's touching this man's ears. He's touching this man's tongue. Why? Well, because this man's problem cannot be remedied with all of the soap and water in Jerusalem. With all of the soap and water on the earth. In fact, Jesus does not stop at just touching this man for that reason. What does he do? He lifts his eyes to heaven. And we're told he sighs, it says in the New King James. I want to clear that up. This is not a frustrated sigh like we would tend to think of it. We tend to associate sighing with something close to exasperation. That's not what this is. In fact, the Greek word here isn't sigh. The Greek word is stanazo, and it means to groan. He's groaning. He's groaning in communion with the Father. He's groaning in the Spirit with the Father, and he declares Ephatha, be open. Mark gives us the translation of that Aramaic word. Be opened. And immediately we're told the man can hear and speak. And there's no questioning here. He simply acts in mercy and grace. He prays. He communes with the Father on behalf of this sad, broken man. And the man is restored. Not just physically, but spiritually. And we'll get to the proof of that restoration, that spiritual restoration here in just a moment. Beloved, I want us to pause. I want us to see the glory here. And so I'm asking you, do you see the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ towards his people? Towards sinners. The dirty ones. People like us. People like you and me. He's moved to transform the life of this poor, dirty, broken soul. Let me ask you something. You know, last week I spent some time really meddling and asking you about your prayer life. Specifically, I asked you about whether or not you're praying for all of these children that we've been blessed with in this church. These children are God's unfathomable mercy to us. 
as a church. I hope you spend some time thinking about it. Praying about it. This morning, I'm going to meddle in a different way because I want for us to see the glory here. The compassion of Jesus being extended to the filthy, to the unclean, to the lame, to the deaf, to the blind. Does it move you? Let me ask you this. Do you see yourself in the shoes of this poor, dirty, broken man? Because that's the picture. Do you see the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, moved with compassion toward you? I want to tell you, there were and there certainly still are many who do not see it. The Pharisees certainly did not see it. They could not see it. They were not desperate in their own estimation. That's why they didn't see it. They were not among the broken ones in their eyes. They were examples of how to thrive. Are you desperate? Are you desperate this morning? Listen, brothers and sisters in Christ, if you are, then this compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ to dirty, desperate people, it should bring a song into your heart and your mind and your lips this morning that can't be stifled. This is the extent of, That Jesus Christ, God incarnate, loves you. He came. He soiled his hands. He got his hands dirty. He walked willingly into the very grip of death in your place. Do you see him? Do you appreciate him? Do you need him? That's the question. There's nothing casual about this. I mean, this scene is not pretty. That's why I said it's not a a romantic painting. There's spit and mud and maybe earwax and death and disease. And there is Jesus, the Lord of glory, the Christ of God, right there in the mix of it. In the mess. Why? Because he came for it. He came for you, beloved. He came to heal your brokenness. He came to give up his life as a ransom for yours. And the word of God tells us that even now, at the right hand of the Father in glory, he is living to make intercession for you. Is your heart singing yet? Do you see it? Do you know it? Do you trust it? Do you look towards him? Are you content to just look clean? To just keep up appearances? To cling to the externals, to the mere husk of religion? 
never really getting to the sweet substance that you so desperately need. Mark is showing you here that substance and the glory that surrounds his actual revelation of himself. Because if you see it, you will never be content with less than it. You will never be content with a clean, pretty, cosmopolitan Jesus that just wants you to look like him. That just wants you to that just wants to set an example for you and then just sort of watch helpless as you feebly stumble your way through this life attempting to follow his lead. That's not the picture of the gospel. No, this is the king. This is the compassionate restorer of broken things. And he took your filth upon himself. And he clothed you in the spotless garment of his perfection and his righteousness. Do you see the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ here? Beloved, we must see it. Finally, I told you that we have proof that these people, including this formerly deaf and mute man, are healed both physically and spiritually. How can I say that? How could I know that? Well, I want you to look at their response. They are astonished. They are rejoicing. They are standing in awe. They're joyful and they cannot stop praising and exalting his name because that's what gratitude for the gospel looks like. I love that Mark paints for us a very real picture here of the Christian life, the normal Christian life, because I think we desperately need to see this in modern evangelicalism. We get this wrong and joy will flee us like a thief. Do you notice what Mark does not say happened? He does not say that Jesus did this miracle and these people went out and they never sinned again. They never got dirty again. He does not say that immediately these people became perfect in their conduct, in their ethics, in their morals. They placed high expectations on all they had surrounding them. They did not start a new holiness sect. They did two things. Two things that I know all of us who belong to Jesus Christ this morning can relate to. Two things that I think are part of the normal Christian life. What are they? Doxology and disobedience. Sobering, isn't it? First, they praised God. (laughs) He has done all things well. They praise Him for who He is. They praise Him for what He's done. He's done all things well. It's reminiscent of the words of Almighty God Himself post-creation in Genesis chapter 1. Right? You remember? God saw all that he made, and what did he say? It is good. It is good. And here is Jesus, God in flesh, and he's restoring all things. He's doing the work of recreation. He's making dead things alive, and the people do what they must. They praise him. They rejoice. They worship. They stand in awe of him. 
Jesus commands them. Amid their praise and worship, Jesus commands them to keep tight-lipped about all that they had seen. And we've talked about that already a, a, a lot. Jesus, uh, his ministry was about far more than just physical healing. His compassion carries him over to uh, complete all these physical he- healings and these miracles. But he's there to seek and save the lost, which is what he's doing. But the crowds, no doubt, are a distraction from his mission. Many of them are coming for the wrong reasons. Many of them are coming with mixed motives. Jesus is not just some wizard performing feats of great mystery. He's fixing broken things. He's doing the work of restoration. He's setting his creation right. Creation that he spoke into being with the word from his mouth. He will come again and he will complete that work. But now, he wants them to keep it on the down low. And what do they do? They disobey him. In fact, according to Mark, the more he commanded, the more widely they proclaimed it. The more he commanded, the more they disobeyed. Beloved, is that not the Christian life? One moment we're riding high because we've tasted the sweet savor of salvation in Jesus Christ and we can't keep the doxology in. We cannot keep the praises from rising to the surface and we rightly fall on our face and we worship. And then from the same mouth that blesses God, the same mouth that praises comes cursing. Though we love the Lord, we are all a far cry from perfection, aren't we? But that's the beauty, beloved. It's why we need Jesus. We need him. We need his righteousness, his perfection, his life. Beloved, I want to ask you this morning. Do you ever find yourself discouraged with your own sanctification process in this life? I do all the time. Right? Daily struggle. Daily struggle. Praise God for that struggle. Because the alternative is for it never to cross your conscience. Are you even this morning finding yourself in a, a cloud of despair, wondering how you could possibly be the way that you are with all that you know and believe and trust? And I want you to understand, I am not excusing sin. I hate that I even have to make this disclaimer. I am not excusing sin. I'm not telling you to go out and just get soaked in sin that grace may abound. I'm not telling you that. I'm pointing you to the truth. I'm asking you to see the glory of your Savior and what He does with someone in your condition. You are being sanctified. That is the truth. If you belong to Jesus, if you have been justified, you are being sanctified and you will be glorified. Praise God. That's the truth. That's what the word of God says. You will not arrive on this side of heaven. You are a walking, talking battlefield of spirit 
and flesh of doxology and disobedience. And that's the normal Christian life. It's why your righteousness on your best day could never be enough. And beloved, by the grace of God, the grace of God is yours in Jesus Christ. His righteousness is yours. And it should move you into doxology. Do you understand? Beloved, this is the normal Christian life. If you're banking on something else this morning, I'm not sorry to ruin your day. You're either righteous in Jesus Christ or you're not righteous. You're not good enough. I don't care how your neighbor measures up to you. All have fallen short. There is none righteous, no, not one. You either have the righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith, which is God's gift, or you don't have it. That we would live in praise for it. That we would make the Christian life about singing God's praises, coming before him, falling on our face, loving his word, loving his law, loving his grace that saves sinners like us. That we would live in it. That we would be faithful to never take our eyes off of what truly matters most. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Beloved, will you sing to the one who came to the nations? To the filthy masses and who got his hands dirty in ministry for you? Will you run to the king who loves his own this much? Beloved, I pray that we will. And I hope that it will not only be reflected in our worship worship this Lord's Lord's Day, but that it will be manifested in every single area of our lives to the glory of his holy name. Praise God for the wonderful truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that saved sinners like all of us. Amen.